Thank you to all of our attendees for joining us today. My name is Joan Feeney. I'm a retired U.S. bankruptcy judge and a former bankruptcy appellate panel judge for um, the First Circuit. Thank you for joining us today, um, attending this program sponsored by the BBA Bankruptcy Section's Strategic Thought Leadership Committee. We're joined um, today by Donald Lastman, who is co-chair with me of, of that committee, the sponsor of today's program on bankruptcy um, appeals. It's important for all bankruptcy practitioners to know the requirements and specialized procedures for both pursuing and defending uh, a bankruptcy appeal, especially the codes um, requirements, the judicial codes requirements, as well as the provisions and requirements of the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure and federal rules of appellate procedure, as well as local rules that may well address um, bankruptcy appellate issues. Um, I'd like to introduce our presenters today. I will introduce them only briefly because their biographies are in the materials. First, Judge Edward Godoy is the Chief Judge of the United States Bankruptcy Appellate Panel for the First Circuit, which hears bankruptcy appeals as an intermediate appellate court um, from all of the districts in the First Circuit by consent. Judge Godoy has been a United States bankruptcy judge for the District of Puerto Rico since 2011. Leslie Storm is the clerk of the First Circuit Bankruptcy Appellate Panel and has served in that capacity for over five years. Prior to that, she was a Bankruptcy Appellate Panel staff attorney for six years, and she also served as the pro se law clerk for the Bankruptcy Court in Massachusetts. Christopher Condon is a shareholder in the law firm um, in Boston of Murphy and King and has been a bankruptcy lawyer for over 20 years. He has substantial experience in um, filing and defending uh, bankruptcy appeals before the BAPs, the United States District Courts, and the United States Courts of Appeals um, for the First Circuit and other circuits as well. Um, we thank the panel for all of their efforts today and especially the wonderful PowerPoint, which we had a chance to preview earlier. There will be an opportunity to ask questions. And as Noah mentioned, please uh, type them in the chat in the Q&A function. There is no ability to type questions in the chat function. The panel has reserved 10 minutes at the conclusion of their presentations for questions and answers which will be answered at, at that time. So uh, with that, thank you all for your attendance and um, let's get started with the program. Judge Feeney, thank you for that introduction and thank you as well for the invitation to speak to this group this afternoon. And thank you participants for your ear. We're going to address a broad range of topics that cover the lifespan of a bankruptcy appeal at least as it winds its way through the intermediate level appellate court. Our objective is to maximize the chances of succeeding in your appeal and avoiding some common procedural pitfalls and also to help you finesse some substantive challenges. We're going to cover preservation of issues for appeal, forum selection, timing of Hello? your appeal. 
timing of your appeal and crafting your notice of appeal. We're also going to spend a fair amount of time on jurisdictional issues that can result in a negative outcome that has nothing to do with the legal merits of your case. The reason for this emphasis is that statistics show that a meaningful number of back and district court bankruptcy appeals are dismissed for jurisdictional infirmities. In fact, in the last five years, in both courts, a very meaningful number of cases were dismissed due to jurisdictional defects. So, next slide, please. Here's the roadmap of the ground we intend to cover. It's kind of an ambitious program for an hour, but if we pace ourselves properly, I think we can do it. Our point of departure is things to think about in bankruptcy proceedings. We'll then move on to forum selection, then the notice of appeal. We'll then cover those jurisdictional hurdles I mentioned. We'll move on to other appellate obligations, and these include the statement of issues, the designation of the record, and, of course, briefing obligations. Not listed here is the culmination of our program. This will be Chief Judge Godoy's update on the status of oral argument at the back and the ingredients of an effective oral argument. So let's take it from the top. You might be surprised to see here that our discussion of appeals actually begins with the conduct of litigation in the bankruptcy court. This is because what you do in the bankruptcy court, or more accurately, what you fail to do in the bankruptcy court can affect your rights on appeal. For example, when a party makes an argument for the first time in a motion for reconsideration in the bankruptcy court, the argument is not preserved for appeal. So the message here is to make your arguments early in the bankruptcy court fully and completely with a view towards a possible appeal. Second, and this one may be more familiar, arguments made for the first time on appeal are waived. I stress this because exceptions to this rule are exceedingly rare. The First Circuit instructs that exceptions are made only in horrendous cases, and that's the circuit's word, not mine, when gross injustice would otherwise occur. And finally, the reviewing court will not consider documents that were not already presented to the bankruptcy court. So the practice pointer is strategize early, failure to do so can result in the loss of rights. So let's move on to our next slide. Let's assume that you have received an adverse ruling from the bankruptcy court and you are prepared to embark upon your bankruptcy appeal. In our circuit, a litigant who wishes to appeal a bankruptcy court adjudication may elect to appeal that adjudication either to the First Circuit back or to the district court. These are known as intermediate level appellate courts. This choice is made when the litigant files its notice of appeal and indicates in the space provided whether it's taking the appeal to the district court or the back. 
and failure to make that election is going to result in the appeal going to the BAP, which is known as the default appellate court in these circumstances. Judge Godoy, could you maybe tell us um, some of the characteristics of a BAP appeal versus a district court appeal and how the BAP, um, you know, what what the elements of a BAP appeal are and maybe what some of the advantages or disadvantages might be? Well, um, I think, well, first, I think that the BAP is a very friendly place for litigants. Uh, we have a staff um, that is always willing to help someone along with the process. And as far as statistics, um, I'm not sure that there is really a significant difference on on the outcome of the case uh, in the BAP as opposed to the district court, other than I think it is pretty significant that the BAP is much more, is much faster. Um, we try to resolve all appeals from, from, from submission, from, from, from filed within eight to nine months. And we make a very strong effort to do that. Statistic-wise, I know that a lot of cases end up getting dismissed for jurisdictional defects, but I attribute that. Um, we've looked at the statistics at the last five years. I attribute that mainly to the fact that most of the a lot of the appellants that have been filing are pro se. And they and they just file their cases either untimely. Uh, it's an interlocutory order they're appealing. Um, but uh, definitely the BAP is much faster than the district court. Much faster. Thank you. Um, we put a couple of slides in here on uh, the requirements for direct appeal to the circuit court. We're obviously going to talk more about the, the intermediary first level of appeal and bankruptcy cases, but uh, if you uh, decide you want to uh, try to appeal directly to the circuit court, you can. Uh, very simply, it requires a, what's called a certification and what's called an authorization. Uh, attorneys or the litigants are the ones that file a certification. Um, it's uh, 11 U.S.C. 158 D2, and then the, the elements or requirements are in uh, subsection A, uh, capital A, um, the certification must state one of three things, either that the judgment order or decree involves a question of law as to which there is no controlling decision in the circuit or in the Supreme Court, or involves a matter of public importance, or the judgment order or decree involves a question of law requiring resolution of conflicting decisions, or that immediate appeal may materially advance the progress of the case. Um, it's fairly extraordinary uh, that a case is appealed directly to the circuit court, but uh, it's not uh, impossible. Uh, just very quickly, too, uh, the rules for filing your certification are in Rule 8006F of the Bankruptcy Rules of Procedure. Uh, simply, it must state that uh, the certification must state facts necessary to understand the question presented, the question itself, the relief sought, uh, which one of the prongs I just talked about, which one of those elements that you're uh, using to seek to appeal directly to the circuit court. And it must, of course, contain a copy of the judgment order or decree and any related opinion or memorandum. And that being said, I'm going to go back to um, the BAP process, if you will. Um, so when you 
are filing a notice of appeal, just uh, as we've been stressing from the beginning, it's obviously important to uh, do everything with care. Uh, the court is not, whether it's the district court or the BAP, uh, is not um, required to so-called rescue a poorly drafted notice of appeal by supplying orders uh, that the appendant, that the appellant intended to appeal but did not uh, did not include. Uh, unlisted orders are waived. Uh, you must provide a copy of the order uh, and and the order denying reconsideration uh, when you file the notice of appeal. And if you're if there are separate related orders that you're appealing, you have to uh, file separate notices of appeal. Uh, this obviously is the jurisdictional threshold to file your appeal, so uh, it's important that it be uh, accurate and complete. So let's assume that you have selected your court and you've crafted that notice of appeal with care. Uh, you. Now, in order to uh, have the appellate court reach the merits of your appeal, as the appellant, you must clear four jurisdictional hurdles. And those are timeliness, finality, mootness, and standing. And your appeal is going to be screened at the outset regarding the presence of these issues. Beginning with the jurisdictional hurdle of timeliness, it's important to note that the deadline for filing an appeal of a bankruptcy court order to the BAP or the district court is 14 days. The deadline is not 30 days, as in the case of filing an appeal with the Court of Appeals. A late appeal will be dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. In some circuits, the timeliness requirement is termed mandatory as opposed to jurisdictional. I'm not sure what the practical significance of this distinction is, but in any event, in our circuit, the timeliness requirement is a jurisdictional requirement. If you do need more time to file your notice of appeal, you should request an extension of time with the bankruptcy court before the expiration of the deadline. And for the contents of that motion, you should refer to Bankruptcy Rule 9006. Um, uh, one more word regarding that uh, timeliness requirement, actually. Uh, Chief Judge Godoy, I think you had an interesting experience on the timeliness issue in the Impressus case. Did you want to share that with our participants? Sure, I'd like to share it because I think it was a good learning experience for both the appellant and frankly, also for me. Um, it impresses PC Puerto Rico versus Impresas Martinez, um, which I believe is 9948 nine, um, nine F3rd 448 from 2020. Um, I, it, I had entered a uh, an opinion and order resolving all claims in a violation of stay case, awarding over $400,000 in damages to the debtor. Um, um, but I delayed entry of the separate judgment to include the substantial, a substantial award of attorney's fees also in the judgment. 
I should not have done that. And that's in rule uh, 5080 of the rules of civil procedure. I could have treated the motion for attorney's fees and costs as a motion to alter or give it the same effect as a motion to alter judgment and thus told the 14-day term to appeal, but I did not. That's in Rule 58E also. Attorney's fees were over $100,000, so it became very contested, and it took much longer than I expected to resolve, way over 200 days. When the separate judgment was finally docketed, the creditor promptly appealed to the district court. The debtor did raise timeliness, but the district court proceeded to affirm my um, judgment and opinion and order on the merits. The debtor appealed to the First Circuit and the Court of Appeals dismissed the appeal as untimely and beyond the 150-day term of Rule 58C2B, which considers that a judgment is effectively entered in this, for purposes of this case, at most 150 days after the entry of the original opinion and order. It's a rule that frankly took me by surprise and the appellant. Thank you. So let's focus on our next jurisdictional hurdle and that is finality. Now, by statute, the BAP and district courts have jurisdiction to hear appeals from final judgments, orders, and decrees of the bankruptcy court. And interlocutory orders, by contrast, may be heard only with leave of court. A final order is typically defined as one which disposes of a discrete dispute. Whereas an interlocutory order merely disposes of an intervening matter along the way. But this distinction is not always easily made. An adversary proceeding is usually viewed as a discrete dispute. But even in that instance, it is essential to examine whether the order on appeal disposes of all claims of all parties. This was precisely the issue in a very recent 11th Circuit case in Ray Esteva, which is reported at 2023 Westlaw 2033361. It's not often we receive pronouncements on finality at the circuit level, so I commend this important case to you. As a practice pointer, if you are appealing an interlocutory order, your notice of appeal must be accompanied by a motion for leave to appeal. And if you fail to do so, you can anticipate in order to show cause why your appeal should not be dismissed, or you may even receive a judgment of dismissal. Chief Judge Godoy, could you maybe we could um, just uh illustrate with a couple of examples of what is a final and what is an interlocutory order. Uh, obviously, the line is never bright, but um, just by example, a couple of things that often happen uh, in court and in bankruptcy court in particular, um, What what is an order denying a motion for relief from stay a final order or not? 
Well, in the first circuit, I would say it usually is. Um, and I'll point out to, but not, but not always. And that is, I would say, an exception because I don't think any other circuit except the first circuit has actually found or held that a motion that an order denying a motion for relief from stay is not a final order. And the case is um, the Atlas pinpoint case, 761 F3rd 177 from 2014. Uh, briefly give the facts because in that case, um, a creditor filed a complaint against the debtor in Virginia District Court and the debtor counterclaimed. And then the debtor went and filed its counterclaim as a complaint in the District Court of Puerto Rico and the creditor counterclaimed there. And the creditor um, asked that the stay be lifted uh, in the Virginia litigation so that it could argue to the Virginia district court judge the first to file rule, which is that normally the first filed case is the one that gets to resolve the, the underlying dispute. I denied the I denied the order to lift the stay, uh, but I but I told the parties, go ahead and let the district court judge in Puerto Rico decide the first to file rule. And if indeed the district court judge in Puerto Rico decides that the case should be heard in Virginia, then come back and I'll lift the stay in Virginia. And because of that very odd circumstance, um, the court of appeal appeals and the only case I'm familiar with um, found that the order denying um, the lift to stay was um, not a final, was interlocutory. Actually, if I may, I, I think the Atlas IT case that Chief Judge Godoy is referencing should also be read in combination with the Supreme Court case uh, in Ray Ritson Group, which also uh, addresses the finality of orders denying relief from stay. So those two cases should be read together and the message being that orders denying relief from stay when it comes to finality are, are complex and uh, those are the two controlling cases. Uh, but, I would, but I would say that you would almost have to appeal immediately because the facts of Atlas are so particular. There's a very strong dissent by Judge Kayata. So, uh, if if it's an important case, if it's an if it's you really have to file the um, file the appeal uh, promptly after the order denying, and then let the BAP or the district court decide it. What about uh, summary judgment orders, Judge? Summary judgment, it's, that's a complicated one because of the liberal uh, um, reading of complaints in the, uh, in the rules of federal uh, civil procedure. But uh, obviously, if the summary judgment resolves all claims against all parties, then it is the final and appealable immediately. If it leaves some claim out or some claim against the party out, then it's interlocutory unless the trial court, the bankruptcy court makes that special finding under the rule that there is no just reason for delay. 
So um, if it, it depends on whether all claims against all parties have been resolved. Thank you. Uh, just very briefly, um, I get to talk about all the esoteric things that uh, rarely get granted, including but not limited to a motion for leave to appeal. Um, so when you file interlocutory appeal, you have to file a motion uh, for leave to appeal, uh, and it should demonstrate to the reviewing court uh, that they exercise the jurisdiction to hear the interlocutory appeal by invoking one of three doctrines. Um, again, I'll just point out that this, this is uh, typically considered to be uh, extraordinary to some extent uh, to have an interlocutory appeal heard by the appellate court. Um, your motion should be persuasive and it has to rely on one of these three doctrines. I think the one probably most commonly um, asserted is the collateral order doctrine. Um, and the collateral order doctrine uh, says that you can have an interlocutory appeal uh, of an order that uh, conclusively determines an important legal question separate from the merits of the primary action and which is unreviewable on appeal. Um, there's a Supreme Court case, an old Supreme Court case called Cohen versus Beneficial Loan, which is uh, talks about the interlocutor, uh, the collateral order doctrine, excuse me, and uh, it refers to a very small class of cases. Uh, as a, for instance, uh, sovereign immunity cases and other types of immunity um, are typically used as paradigm examples of, of co uh, collateral orders. Um, the Cohen case involved um, a change in this applicable state law that required a litigant to post a bond. And so there was a determination um, regarding that discrete issue, um, which was taken up on an interlocutory appeal. Uh, the second uh, doctrine is contained in 28 U.S.C. section 158A3, um, says a controlling issue of law about which there is there are differing opinions and the resolution of which would materially advance the litigation. Um, and the last is the, the it's called the Forgay-Conrad Doctrine, which again is an 1848 uh, Supreme Court case, and it ordered the turnover of property uh, there are some cases that still refer to uh, this disposition of property as a requirement to invoke the Forgay-Conrad doctrine, uh, but generally speaking, it's uh, whether the order would result in irreparable injury to the appellant if the review is delayed. Um, just, you know, courts will often say that they do not want to engage in piecemeal litigation, um, and that's a, that's a term that you'll hear a lot when uh, courts are denying your uh, interlocutory appeal and your motion for leave to appeal. But uh, also, they, uh, as uh, Chief Judge Godoy told me, you know, the appellate court is very uh, particular about meeting each element of these different doctrines. So uh, make sure that you uh, completely uh, argue uh, the entirety of the doctrine, because if one uh, part of it is missing, your motion is likely to be denied. Thank you. So that's going to bring us to our next jurisdictional hurdle, and that is mootness. If mootness is present, the reviewing court may, and in some instances, actually must decline to hear the appeal. As one appellate court said, there are three flavors of mootness, and all of them are alive and well in our circuit. The BAP will frequently take up the issue of mootness 
sua sponte in the form of an order to show cause, directing the appellant to demonstrate why the appeal should not be dismissed on account of mootness. So it's important to be able to identify and distinguish the various forms of mootness. So let's, let's focus on them. The first form, uh, and perhaps the most easy to, um, to recognize, is statutory mootness, which is intended to protect certain transactions. For example, if the appeal involves a sale order under Section 363M of the Bankruptcy Code or a borrowing order under Section 364, the question of statutory mootness arises. So when an order authorizing a sale to a good faith purchaser is entered under Section 363 and a sale of that order is not obtained, the sale is final and cannot be reversed on appeal. Without a stay, the appellate court has no power to fashion a remedy because it cannot undo the sale, even if the authorization was erroneous. A borrowing order under Section 364E works similarly. The reversal on appeal of an order authorizing the debtor to obtain credit does not alter the validity of the debt to an entity that extended that credit unless the order is stayed pending appeal. So that brings us to constitutional mootness. I'm actually going to skip over equitable and move, move to constitutional or jurisdictional mootness. This form stems from the Article 3 case or controversy requirement. An appeal is going to be constitutionally moot under Article 3 if due to a change in circumstances, the appellate court is unable to grant effectual relief. And in this circumstance, the appeal must be dismissed. Well, how do we assess whether an appeal is constitutionally moot? The Supreme Court recently gave us guidance by saying, if there's any chance of money changing hands, there is a live controversy and no constitutional mootness. So some examples of constitutional mootness. Well, if the bankruptcy case is closed, the appeal is going to become constitutionally moot. Or if property that was subject of stay, a stay relief order was sold, the appeal of the order granting relief from stay becomes constitutionally moot. Now, I'm going to save the rest of our time on this slide for equitable mootness. Although it has come under scrutiny in a number of circuits, no circuit has yet abolished the doctrine and the Supreme Court has not abolished the doctrine. And recently, the First Circuit has affirmed a BAP decision on equitable mootness grounds. So the equitable mootness doctrine is definitely viable in our circuit. It does share some common threads with constitutional mootness. Like constitutional mootness, equitable mootness takes into account changes in circumstances and the effect of that change on the granting of relief. Unlike constitutional mootness, in the case of equitable mootness, di dismissal is discretionary. Here, delay is going to be the distinguishing factor, if not the overriding factor. As the First Circuit has stated, 
the term equitable mootness is actually a misnomer. The doctrine might better be viewed as akin to equitable latches. The notion that the passage of time combined with inaction by a party can render the granting of relief inequitable. Or as the BAP has stated several times recently, equitable mootness occurs when changes to the status quo subsequent to the entry of the order being appealed make it impractical or inequitable to unscramble the proverbial eggs. So when do we see equitable mootness? Well, the most common example, but by no means the only example is in the case of an unstayed order confirming a plan of reorganization. In assessing mootness, courts are going to look at whether the appellant pursued a stay with reasonable diligence. They're going to look at whether providing relief would harm innocent third parties. And in that case of the unstayed order confirming a plan, they're going to look at whether the challenged plan proceeded to a point well beyond any practical annulment. And that is the language of the First Circuit. Judge, if you could tell us, uh, um, you know, bankruptcy being relatively fast paced uh, in comparison to other court proceedings, uh, you know, a reorganization case. Is, it, is every order in a reorganization case uh, destined to become equitably moot? Well, um, I do think promptness is, is very, very important. So if, again, if it's an important case, um, there's enough money involved, uh, I think uh, you really have to have the motion for stay pending appeal, ready to go on the afternoon of the adverse judgment or order against you. It, it, or if you don't have it ready to go, it should come within one or two days after. You have to move very, very quickly if you want to avoid equitable mootness. Because the courts are, appellate courts are very hesitant to unwind, uh, to unwind a case after a lot has, a lot of water has passed under the bridge from the order. I do have a case. I don't know if we have time, um, which is another case I had in the Chapter Eleven plan. Do we have time? Sure. Yes, in this case, which is the Pedro Lopez Munoz case, 983 F3rd 69 from 2020, it was very litigated by a by an insurance company against the debtor, and the case dragged out for years and years and years. But finally, I did confirm a plan, and the insurance company did not um, move to stay. Three months later, when the debtor moved for a final decree, then the insurance company moved to stay. I denied the motion to stay as untimely, and um, and and the debtor kept on um, with the as with the confirmation. I don't think that the debtor appealed the denial of the stay. Uh, um, final decree was entered, uh, but the debtor 
had appealed the order confirming the plan. By the time the First Circuit got around to reciting, deciding the case or hearing it, um, it had been two years since the order of confirmation. So a lot had happened in two years from the confirmation order. And it was the classic example of equitable mootness. They just were not going to unwind two years worth of payments and property transfers. So um, just very quickly on that point, uh, the, the next slide is, is about uh, filing motions for stay. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with the judge's um, uh, advice that uh, you should have a motion uh, for stay pending appeal uh, ready to go uh, when you go to a hearing where you expect to get a, a meaningful uh, order if you intend to appeal it. Uh, you just very briefly, you have to file the motion uh, in the court where the uh, matter is pending. It's usually the bankruptcy court. If it's a bankruptcy court order, you filed the motion for stay in the bankruptcy court. Now, this can sometimes be a form over function because the first uh, prong of the test that you have to meet in order to get a stay is the judge has to find uh, there's a likelihood of success on appeal. And obviously, the bankruptcy judge uh, has a hard, hard time making that uh, determination since they just ruled against you. Um, but nonetheless, you file it in the bankruptcy court and then you file it in the appellate court if and when it gets denied. Um, you know, in sale cases, uh, if we're contesting sales or or um, or if we're trying to sell something, uh, you know, we have the um, opposition to the motion for stay pending appeal uh, also ready to go. Uh, if you're you know doing a reorganization case and selling something where you expect somebody to appeal the sale order. Um, as I said, the first element is likelihood of success on appeal because the standard is the same as a preliminary injunction. So that brings us to our final jurisdictional hurdle, and that's the standing requirement. In the First Circuit, standing for bankruptcy appeals is conferred on a person's aggrieved. That is those whose pecuniary interests are affected. We have listed here examples of lack of standing. And for the sake of time, I'm going to uh, let you read those on your own so we can uh, reserve time for questions at the end of our presentation. So moving on to the next slide. Uh, what happens if you receive from the appellate court in order to show cause regarding standing? Well, you have to demonstrate in your response that the appellant has suffered direct, measurable pecuniary harm that is neither contingent nor speculative. So moving on to our next slide, uh, let's assume that you have uh, skillfully uh, navigated those jurisdictional hurdles. What happens next? Um, we have categorized the appellate obligations into the following categories, identifying the issues on appeal, designating the record, and briefing. So the first thing you have to do after you file your notice of appeal is file a statement of issues um, on appeal. That's required to be filed um, within 14 days after your notice of appeal. And you have to list all the issues that you uh, intend to brief. Um, Otherwise, they're deemed waived. Um, so the standards are set forth in Rule 8009. 
Uh, I'm also going to move through these relatively quickly till we get to the uh, more substantive oral argument and briefing points. You also have to file a designation of the record um, in, as set forth in Rule 8009. And these are all of the uh, docket entries and uh, importantly, uh, also transcripts uh, of hearings that are relevant. Um, the appellant is required to provide all of these things to designate them and to, if necessary, obtain them so that they can be gathered by the bankruptcy court and then transmitted to the court of appeal, whichever one it is. Um, just again, you know, if you forget to designate something, it can be fatal uh, to your case. Uh, Clerk Storm forwarded me uh, yesterday a case out of the uh, district court in uh, Puerto Rico where the case was dismissed because the appellant, who was the trustee, uh, did not provide a transcript. Um, and the order that he that the trustee was appealing uh, was a uh, dismissal of an adversary proceeding, quote unquote, for the reasons stated on the record. So obviously the court couldn't uh, decide the case without the transcript of that hearing uh, where it set forth the reasons for dismissing the uh, seven-year-old adversary proceeding. Um, the, the are specific elements required to be set forth in your uh, bankruptcy brief, your bankruptcy appeal brief. Those are set forth in rule 8014. Uh, it's Quite detailed, uh, so I would refer you to that. Uh, importantly, I would point out that um, we spent a long time talking about jurisdictional issues. You are required to state the basis for uh, the appellate court's jurisdiction uh, in your appeal brief, uh, because obviously the court can address uh, its own jurisdiction whenever it likes. So you should not forget to do that. Um, but again, there are eight or ten elements uh, of your brief that uh, you're required to um, include. And, uh, and file in accordance with the briefing schedule set by the court. And I would just point out too that uh, Rule 8019 uh, says there's a presumption for oral argument on a bankruptcy appeal, uh, but you should include a statement in your brief uh, with respect to whether you would like to have oral argument. And with that, I will turn it back over to Chief Judge Godoy to talk about what you should do in your oral argument. I think you're on mute, Judge. Yes, sorry for that. As the slide indicates, um, Rule 8019 provides a presumption of oral argument. There are exceptions. If the argument would not aid the decision process, if the appeal is frivolous, if the dispositive issues have been authoritatively decided, um, but that said, I would say that the BAP is fairly liberal, generous in giving oral argument if one of the parties requests it. And it is even, I think, since, since COVID and we've adopted virtual hearings, it's very, it's very easy to hold oral arguments now virtually. Uh, easy, easy and economical for both the parties and the court. I, Perhaps this is a good time to point out that even though the BAP did allow its COVID-19 emergency order regarding virtual oral arguments to expire back in December of last year, as a practical matter, um, all of our oral arguments are 
All of our oral arguments are still being held virtually. But that said, if you think you have a case that merits an in-person oral argument, you should um, you should um, tell us so that we could consider holding the oral argument in person. The um, the other, um, of course, the most important thing about oral argument is as an is as an attorney is candor. That's number one. That trumps everything else. You, I mean, you can you should assume, and I can tell you it is the case. Uh, each of the judges um, does study each case very very thoroughly, and and they and they know pretty much um, um, the case inside out. So, and, and, and if there's a, and if there's a question about the record, the facts that have been established by the record, please don't exaggerate. If you know the answer and you're sure about the answer, give the answer. If you're unsure, you can give the answer, but say you're uncertain. Um, um, so so familiarity with the content of the record is very important, um, but you should assume that the panel judges are also very familiar with the, is with the contents of the record. And courtesy, well, I think that um, um, since our oral arguments are virtual, uh, Courtesy is definitely important. It's always important, but it's even more important in virtual here um, oral arguments because you, it's the recording is going to be very unintelligible if people talk um, um, out of turn. Um, but um, it's, um, I think that's those are the main points. Thank you, Thank you. Judge Godoy. Well, that brings us to a few final words. And I would just say the following by way of closure. Um, I would recommend adhering to all court orders, including deadlines, failure to comply with court orders uh, under the case law of our circuit is in and of itself grounds for dismissing an appeal. Secondly, if you need an extension of time to comply with a court order, uh, do file a motion before the expiration of time and do consult Bankruptcy Rule 9006 for the contents of that motion. And finally, if you receive an adverse ruling from the BAP or the district court, you may appeal to the circuit. You have 30 days in which to do so and the circuit's jurisdiction is limited to final orders. And so that brings us to the end of our presentation. I think we have covered the lifespan of an appeal in the intermediate level courts. And we do have time for questions, if there are any. Yes, Leslie, there are several um, questions. Uh, the the first, there are two relating to final orders versus uh, locatory orders. If a um, counsel is um, 
aggrieved by an order of the bankruptcy court and is not sure whether the order is an interlocutory order um, or a final order, um, sh should counsel take a chance and simply file a, a notice of appeal or um, go through the process of a, a motion for leave to appeal addressed to the intermediate appellate court? Under those circumstances, my recommendation would be to file the notice of appeal with the request for leave. Um, and my recommendation for doing so is twofold. Number one, because the relevant uh, bankruptcy rule is couched in mandatory terms. It does say if the order is interlocutory, it must be filed with a request for leave. So uh, the safer, better practice is to file the notice with the motion. And secondly, the motion gives you an opportunity to uh, cast your argument in the best light rather than to and to be proactive rather than to be confronted in the first instance with an order to show cause or worse, a judgment of dismissal without having had the opportunity to put your best foot forward. Um, the second part of the question is, um, can, can the bankruptcy court um, make a determination that something such as denial of plan confirmation, which the Supreme Court has said is interlocutory, uh, can the bankruptcy court um, find that that's a final order and then facilitate an appeal? No, the bankruptcy court does not make determinations of finality. No, um, that issue is fodder for the appellate court. When it comes to um, appealing interlocutory orders, the role of the bankruptcy court, as Chief Judge Godoy mentioned, is the issuance of uh, Rule 54 certificate, which provides that there is no just reason for delaying the appeal. In other words, it acknowledges the interlocutory nature of the ruling, but um, gives the appellant license to proceed with the appeal. This next one um, may be for Christopher um, regarding designation of of um, of the record and the requirement to order a transcript. If um, I represent the appellee depending, defending the appeal and the appellant's counsel fails to designate in, in the record the transcript or order the transcript, um, it, in a case where the bankruptcy court dictated its findings of fact and conclusions of law on the record, an oral ruling, well, should I, as Appalese counsel, designate the transcript and order the transcript and pay for the transcript? Well, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, perhaps go that far if you're the appellee, because uh, obviously the appellants failed to do what it's required to do, and therefore there's grounds to dismiss the appeal. Um, 
there, there is on a there is usually an opportunity for you as the FLE to counter designate items that you think are relevant to your argument that were not designated by the appellant. Um, but as a strategic matter, obviously, you're not required to cure the defects of the appellant's failures to designate appropriately. So should you move to dismiss the appeal if, if they haven't properly perfected the appeal? Yeah, I think I would. Um, one question about briefs, if, um, again, um, if, if I'm representing an appellee, um, and the appellant's brief fails to cover an issue that was the subject of the statement of issues, is, is that a waiver or should I cover it in my brief? Well, I, I don't, uh, I don't believe that the court would necessarily find it to be a waiver if it wasn't briefed fully um, or because it was it was raised, uh, but it wasn't argued. So obviously the court can decide that you've failed as the appellant to carry your burden on the appeal um, by because your brief is insufficient. Um, but again, you can make arguments in your brief, but you're not required to make the appellant's arguments in your brief. All right, um, go, we have a few more questions going back to the um, notice of appeal and some of the um, requirements at the outset of an appeal. What are the consequences of a notice of appeal failing to list all parties and in interest that should have been included as appellees? Clerk Storm, do you want to take this one? Sure. Um... That should have been included as appellees. I yes. That's the question. Yes. Um, that's not a fatal defect by any means. Um, number one, the the BAP at any rate uh, provides fairly liberal opportunity to amend notices of appeal, and um, sometimes. If the appellee is not named, we will actually supply and or give notice uh, to an omitted party. Thank you. Um, we have a question um, also on the record um, on appeal um, and, and the timeline for it. Um, can parties ask the um, intermediate appellate court or the circuit court for an extension of time to um, designate the record or to amend the record? Yes. Uh, to file the original record, the request for extension of time should be filed with the bankruptcy court. After the record has been filed, requests to amend it should be filed with the appellate court. And of course, file the motion to extend before the expiration yes. of the deadline. Yes. Um, here's an interesting question. Um, an anonymous attendee um, reports that filing documents with the BAP is very different from filing documents with the bankruptcy court. Is there a plan to have the process um, be more consistent? <laughs> 
I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not sure what that question is uh, targeted at. There isn't really uh, a plan in, in, in place. So I, I really can't speak to that because I'm not sure um, what aspect of the filing process it's targeted at. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but if, if that um, audience member would like to email me with a specific question, I would be more than happy to address the question um, more fully and candidly. Um, why are BAP opinions and district court opinions not binding? I assume that the, um, the, um, the, the question relates to lack of precedential effect. Um, what, what, is, what is the precedential effect of an intermediate appellate court decision? Judge Godoy, do you want to talk to this? Well, um, I can speak to the BAP, right? We have a tradition of unless we unless a, a subsequent panel thinks that the prior panel made a very serious mistake, we have a very long tradition of giving a lot of deference to our prior opinions. It's there wouldn't be any purpose really of having a BAP if we did not ourselves um, give quite a bit of deference, precedential weight in effect to our prior decisions. And Judge Godoy, Chief Judge Godoy, I think this one um, might be um, for you. Um, do you have any um, recommendations on how to prepare for an appellate argument before the BAP um, contrasted to a motion hearing or summary judgment hearing before the bankruptcy court? Well, I would say um, it's they are limited and fair. Uh, is it twenty minutes um, to to each to each side? It's so fifteen minutes per side, unless uh, there are multiple parties on each side. Then so right. it's extended to twenty. So it is a very short amount of time. I think uh, you shouldn't regurgitate what's in your brief because I assure you that everybody has read the briefs and is very familiar with them. But if there are points um, that weren't made in the brief, that is that is that buttress your arguments, make them on oral argument and um, and. Obviously, practice, right? You should have a trial run um, with a colleague of, of what you would say if you were allowed to speak for 15 minutes without interruption. It could happen. It's not very common, but it does happen. So in an oral argument, um, how, how do you face, how do you address the weaknesses of of, of your argument. I know that, as you said, the BAP judges are extremely well prepared um, and have have reviewed and discussed the appeal um, um, quite thoroughly be, be before the hearing. Um, say, say, for example, there's a, a an opinion um, on point from another circuit that that completely goes against you. How how do you as an advocate uh, face those weaknesses. Who's going to answer that one? 
I can start by saying is that you have to acknowledge your weak your your weaknesses because they're they if you the they will be known to the panel and 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 if there's another case in another circuit it's not precedential so you have to make your argument as to why it shouldn't be followed in the first circuit and I would say pretty much any decent attorney can always distinguish um, uh, another case. In other words, add some facts of your, no two cases really have the exact same facts, almost never. So point out what the differences are and why they shouldn't. And if you disagree with the circuit, just respectfully disagree with the other circuit. And there's one very uh, final quick one, very, very quick. Um, I believe it's most appropriate for the clerk of court um, of the of the BAP. Are dismissals of an appeal considered affirmances? And 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 how would how would somebody how would somebody cite a, a dismissal that wasn't on the merits? Uh, are are they affirmances? I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, that that was the question. Is a dismissal an affirmance, or is I it? Don't, I, I, I don't think that they're that they have the the. I mean, to the extent they have presidential value, they don't um, because it's a dismissal. You, I think, you included if you cite the case, you include the dismissal in the in the blue book form of the citation, this, whatever appeal dismissed, but it doesn't it doesn't carry the same weight of a decision by the BAP to the BAP that was decided on the merits. And it's the same, I would say, for summary affirmance. It doesn't carry with the subsequent BAP panel the same weight as a full decision on the merits. Oh. Oh, uh, Judge Feeney, if that question is right, I, I concur with Chief Judge Godoy. And if that question is uh, targeted at a dismissal on jurisdictional grounds, it means that the panel did not reach the substantive merits of the appeal. So it at least as to the merits, it doesn't carry any precedential value. If it has value, it might support a proposition that um on those facts, a court would lack jurisdiction. So it, it might it might support a limited jurisdictional proposition, but it certainly would not uh, be a precedent for any other proposition. Thank you. Well, I want to end the Q and A portion of the program with a comment, not a question. One of the attendees said, "This has been the most useful CLE in ages." And I thank uh, him for that positive feedback, but also thank um, uh, Chief Judge Godoy, Christopher Condon, and Leslie Storm for a thoughtful and detailed um, presentation on the requirements for bankruptcy appeals. So thank you for your um, efforts and a great presentation. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. For participating.